Hey everybody, it's Negon. This week's been a, a tragic one here on Treaty One territory, uh, as our community found out this week about the murders of four more Indigenous women. This violence is unfortunately all too common uh, in this place. So instead of Dan and I coming in and starting the podcast, we thought it better to uh, honor the lives of the four women by saying their names. We are a much lesser community because of the loss of these aunties, sisters, mothers, and daughters. Rebecca Contois, Morgan Beatrice Harris, Mercedes Myron, and Buffalo Woman. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Please welcome your hosts, Nigan Sinclair and Dan Lett. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's Dan Lett from the Free Press. I'm here with my uh, brother in podcasts, uh, Nigan Sinclair. And uh, as noted in the uh, introduction, uh, we're going to be devoting a significant portion of today's podcast to discussing and contemplating the impacts of uh, of what is now confirmed to be a serial killer that has been preying on Indigenous women. We're going to be having a storyteller segment that certainly connects to some of the themes we're talking today and a feature interview later on that will also uh, connect very strongly to uh to what we're talking about today. We do want to touch a little bit on um, some national and local political news that is uh, uh, coming up in uh, across the country and in Manitoba. And uh, I guess the uh, we'll start uh, first by looking ab- abroad, abroad, uh, beyond, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> beyond the borders of Manitoba, those people who live beyond the borders. Well, there's, uh, it's sort of like yeah. another country these days. It sure, sure oh, feels man. like the country to the south of us anyways. Yeah, well, so uh, da- uh, Premier, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith and the Sovereignty Act. So, uh, okay, again, uh, give me the 30-second explanation of the, uh, the madness that is the Sovereignty Act. So the aptly named Bill 1 in Alberta, and I think it's made, it's called Bill 1 for a reason, uh, uh, that Daniel Smith has introduced. Of course, she's heading into an election soon. So this is very much in the context of her just having won the leadership of the United Conservative Party in Alberta, at the same time heading towards an election in just a few months. Uh, during the election campaign, the leadership campaign, sorry, the uh, she proposed the Alberta Sovereignty Act, which in essence is a bill that would uh, in many ways be Quebec's dream. It would be a <laughs> law that would be yeah. passed that simply could state that Alberta, it would be like the notwithstanding clause run amok. It would be the ability of the Alberta government to supersede all federal legislation. And what Daniel Smith says uh, to stay in their lane while we stay in ours, meaning yeah. that uh, Alberta would have ultimate say on everything involving things like health, housing, uh, all the things the province takes care of. Uh, and then, of course, Calgary mayor, uh, the Calgary mayor came out and said, uh, th- this, of course, completely tramples on municipal rights. So yeah. it really is uh, Daniel Smith declaring Alberta to be a sovereign state, completely independent of Canada, but still for Canada to uh, take care of all the big stuff like national defense and so on. And that's basically what the bill entails. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I have to tell you, like, as I was fortunate enough, I was working for the, at the Free Press National Bureau um, in the mid to late 90s. And, um, you know, my first big assignment was the 95 Quebec referendum. And I remember uh, in the lead up to the referendum, I did a, a long series trying to explain, you know, what Quebecers really wanted. Uh, and um, it was interesting that the, the concept of sovereignty association, I mean, if you were to look at it from a purely selfish point of view, is it, like it's what you, it's an absolute dream, <laughs> you know, where uh, a province would get to decide which parts of uh, the federal political regime it would accept, which parts it would reject and, and sort of do its own thing. But at the same time, they'd get to continue using Canadian currency, the, their citizens would carry Canadian passports. I mean, like it is, it's, it's the have your cake and eat it too. Uh, political, uh, you know, dream. Like the reality of it, of course, is a lot different. And in fact, you know, Quebecers have have rejected various forms of sovereignty association on the basis that, you know, nothing comes without a cost. And you know, uh, the first referendum in Quebec, the cost was the outflow of intellectual capital. And, and financial capital as companies relocated. I mean, the, the first referendum is what really made Toronto the center of the universe, uh, financial universe, uh, because of all the, the head offices and others who left yeah. uh, Montreal. I mean, in so many ways, Mississauga was created because of the paranoia around Quebec sovereignty. Uh, oh, what a condemnation of sovereignty. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm only kidding. You know, I got family that lives in Mississauga. Sorry. Sorry, bro. <laughs> <laughs> the, the you know the the, the most uh, craziest thing. Well, I mean, first off, the name of the bill, of course, is the uh, Alberta Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act, and the kind of absurdity just goes on from there. Um, what would policing look like? Is just an example. So, if if Alberta can rewrite federal laws uh, simply because they feel that it's interfering with their independence. Uh, what would policing look like? Because what you have is you have the RCMP, which covers a great deal of Alberta. And then what you have is civic police, uh, which tends to be run by the municipal government. But then, of course, for Alberta to then take over policing, and let's say that the RCMP were following federal laws, but they wanted them to follow Alberta laws, uh, but yet the feds would be paying for the RCMP. I mean, we've just the, the complicatedness rolls on from there. And we could continue to, you know, go through different elements, all different, you know, the municipal laws. Uh, what does water look like? What does lands, natural resources look like? Yeah. Uh, but you did, it, it just makes you do gymnastics in your head uh, to see that this bill is almost impossible to carry out other than just to be a political tool to try to be part of Daniel Smith's election campaign. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the... I think once again, um, the, the true test of the sanity of the sovereignty within Canada law is going to come the next, the, you know, when Daniel Smith has to take it to voters. And, uh, you know, personally, I don't think there's any indication there have been no real public opinion polls or um, suggestions that this is marketable to the entirety of the Alberta population. Remembering, of course, that, you know, as, as uh, uh, various populist 
conservative politicians in, in Alberta have found out, you know, this isn't the Alberta of 50 years ago or even 30 years ago. You know, it's a much more diverse place. Politically, it's much more diverse. And, uh, you know, it, it's so I think that the I think the she can probably get it through the legislature. But I don't think that there's any chance the Sovereignty Act survives an election. Uh, well, not everyone in Alberta is a big fan of this act. I mean, the chiefs of Alberta came out and said, just like during Quebec sovereignty, uh, First Nations came out and said, good luck, Quebec, yeah. to try to then just, uh, if you declare your independence from Canada, uh, we're going to declare our independence from treaties, and therefore the land reverts back to us. And I don't think Albertans are interested in restarting treaty negotiations, especially now that we can have lawyers. Uh, and yeah. so <laughs> there is a, a much different uh, vote when it comes to dealing with First Nations in Alberta. And unsurprisingly, the chiefs have uh, have said good luck in trying to impose the Sovereignty Act on us. Well, speaking of elections, uh, my daughter has been just this is her first election that she's uh, been really interested in. And there's a by-election here in Winnipeg. Uh, she's been out supporting uh, the local NDP candidate. That's been something really important to her. Her to her, her his name is Logan Oxenham. Uh, he uh, is in a very tight fight in a traditional conservative riding of Kirkfield Park against a uh, former mayoral candidate, Kevin Klein, who's running for the Conservatives. And this is a bit of a litmus test for next year's provincial election, isn't it? Uh, way more than uh, the Fort White by-election. I mean, we had a we had an earlier by-election um, where uh, to replace uh, uh, the seat uh, the, or to fill the seat held by uh, former Premier Brian Pallister, uh, who imploded. And uh, you know, I live more in in the central part of the city. I can still remember the day I saw the mushroom cloud come up from Fort White when his political career imploded. But I digress. Uh, so Fort White is really hard, hardcore Tory. Um, you know, if, if the progressive conservatives had lost that seat, it would have been horrible. Kirkfield Park is a slightly different uh, kettle of fish. Um, it has been, well, uh, you know, in the, in the uh, early 2000s, uh, the Gary Dewar-led uh, NDP turned it into a bellwether riding. So uh, in 2003 election, uh, Gary Dewar and the NDP are incredibly popular. Gary Dewar is the number one choice to be premier, even among people who want to vote uh, progressive conservative. And uh, and he started off that election campaign by saying that he was going to start knocking down traditional Tory seats, Southdale, Riel, and uh, Kirkfield Park. And sure enough, uh, it was like a it was a massacre for the uh, Stuart Murray and the Conservatives, just horrible. And uh, and he did, and they uh, they held that uh, that seat until the government changed hands again. And uh, I think the um, you know overall, uh, it makes this this by election a lot riskier. Um, you know, certainly, uh, I've actually heard uh, some progressive conservatives. Uh, theorized that if the Tories were to lose this seat, which I still think is a bit of a long shot, but if they were to lose this seat, then, um, you know, there would be an immediate push to perhaps uh, replace Heather Stephenson before next fall. 
because that's what progressive conservatives do. When the going gets tough, they throw their leader under the bus. So, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, but yeah, but it, this is going to be a fascinating December 13th. Uh, is, yeah, it's going to be incredible. Could, could you imagine, you know, being a leader of a party and never getting a chance to lead it into an election? Um, how rare is that? Uh, but, you know, Pretty rare. I, I actually am try, I'm having trouble in my brain remembering any party that's not let a leader head into an election. However, um, the one other th- candidate that's a bit of a wild card in this race, but people aren't really talking about because they, it really is a, a bit of a forum on the conservative government of where are they? Do they have a shot in any way in Winnipeg? This would be the riding to test that is uh, the liberal candidate Rhonda Nickel. Uh, and the reason why, you know, normally liberals in Manitoba are mostly an afterthought. They don't are they don't tend to have much impact other than in River Heights, where Dr. John Gerard has hold held, held his seat forever. But Rhonda Nichols interesting because she's a nurse at the Grace Hospital, and of course, this whole by election has really been a battle about healthcare and about the issue of funding healthcare adequately, and the fact that we've got a nurse who, as a frontline worker. Uh, running for the election seat uh, may be able to pull some support from either candidate. I think the, uh, I, you know, I think to a certain extent, the, the, uh, the progressive conservatives and the liberals have both been, been clever in, in selecting their candidates. I mean, the NDP candidate is strong as well. Um, you know, uh, the Ron and Nickel, uh, her connection to healthcare I mean, right now that that remains the uh, the Tory government's uh, Achilles heel, um, and and in particular, you know the uh, the the botched plan to reorganize hospitals, reduce the number of ERs. Um, nurses have rebelled against that plan, um, so you know there are going to be a lot of people in that part of the city who are willing to judge this current government on the you know by the way that uh that things uh the services provided at the er at uh, grace hospital now whether or not that's fair or not uh the the conservative progressive conservatives are patently aware that healthcare is going to be the issue so they've uh, wrangled kevin klein a former city councillor who recently just ran uh for the the uh uh, in the Winnipeg mayoral uh, election and lost, and he did okay. Yeah, um, you know, and uh, you know, Kevin is is now an experienced, you know, constituency politician. He knows how to run an election campaign. Um, you know, he knows how to knock on doors and and work his uh, his connections. And you know, he was pretty popular. Like if he had run for re-election in his West Winnipeg riding, he undoubtedly would have been reelected. So the, the question is whether or not uh, Klein's personal uh, credibility is enough to uh, overcome the current government's lack of credibility on healthcare. It's interesting to me that in, in, in just this week, um, you know, both the liberals or I guess late last week, both the Liberals and the and the Progressive Conservatives did healthcare announcements, and um, you know Kevin Klein's uh, line of attack was to bring up problems that existed under the NDP government in terms of emergency room management and wait times. And I gotta say, <laughs> if that's the extent, like if that is the sharpest tip of the sharpest spear 
that the progressive conservatives have to offer, uh, Kevin's in trouble. Yeah. Uh, you know, because, you know, uh, Winnipeg hospitals, I mean, and the pandemic plays a role, but I mean, the performance of the hospital network is so much worse now than oh, it was it, under, it, under the NDP. It, the, the, clo- the massive closure of ERs before the pandemic. I mean, yeah. like talk about a, uh, a, a perfect storm for the conservatives of disasters. Um, and which leads them, of course, to uh, Heather Stephenson being the lowest rated premier in the country. Uh, it is going to be a very interesting by-election next week. December 13th is when the by-election will take place. And I really think that that will be a big sign of for either NDP or the Conservatives of what next, next uh, year's provincial election is going to look like. Yeah. So we return to what has really been the a uh, big issue here in Treaty 1 in, in Winnipeg this week uh, with the uh, horrific situation that has been created. You know, last night there was a vigil at the Forks with hundreds of people uh, standing outside in uh, sub-zero temperatures. Uh, my family and myself were out last night doing ceremonies uh, for our these sisters, these aunties whose lives were lost. Uh, it is something that yet we come together again so many times in this territory to uh, to experience, to honor, to remember, to say the names of Indigenous women who are lost. And so we've, we're going to dedicate the rest of our show today to talking about this issue and talking particularly about the case at hand, which we will do in the last segment after our feature interview, which is with longtime advocate, uh, chair of the Manitoba Coalition on Murder, Missing Indigenous Women and Girls, Sandra Delarond, who uh, very graciously in the midst of all of this tragedy, gave us some time to have a feature interview. Uh, we're very lucky to have her. And then uh, we've also got a great storyteller as well who's going to talk not quite about this issue, but something related. Former uh, NDP MLA and now independent consultant Kevin Chief is uh, probably one of the most impactful, impassioned emissaries or what's the word i'm trying to look for here he is a he, he brings a message of reconciliation to indigenous and non-indigenous audiences that's so incredibly powerful explains it in a way that that i think really helps people who, who don't fully understand reconciliation with indigenous people and he's going to tell a very very personal story that i think uh you know will will explain some of the underlying issues that are driving the emotion right now that is uh is really enveloping winnipeg hi i'm kevin chief former mla for point douglas also known as a husband dad and a high stepping square dancer I'm going to be sharing a, a story that uh, came out in the Winnipeg Free Press on the eve of the last uh, federal election in 2019, and it was done by Eva Wozni. I was uh, sitting at home on the couch on a Saturday morning, and um, on the front page of the Winnipeg Free Press, I saw, I saw this image. I hadn't even read the story. I just saw the image, and... It was an image of, of my uncle, Dennis. My, my eyes filled up with tears, and my, my wife asked what was, uh, 
what was wrong. And I told her that my, that my uncle was on the front page of the paper and it was about a story about how people who are experiencing homelessness, how impossible it is to vote. And often when I share um, and have the opportunity to share stories or, or share with particularly young people, I try to tell people that the best job I'm ever going to have was to be the MLA for Point Douglas. I'm, I'm deeply proud of my roots in the Winnipeg's North End. I was raised by a, a single father. Uh, we struggled like a lot of families with issues of poverty and alcoholism. But I lived amongst a community of people who, who always reminded me that although I didn't have a lot, there were still ways I could contribute and be generous. And because I'm a former elected person, I got to sit in cabinet. I understand how important engage, engagement is in the political process. So to see my uncle on the front page, you know, I, I got to tell you, it really touched me. And then when I read the story, especially the very first line uh, that Eva put in, it said, Dennis Chief is a 60 scoop survivor. So my uncle and my, his, his brothers and sisters were sent off to families in the United States. And as a young boy, my uncle, five or six years old, was taken from our family. And, you know, no sense of belonging, no love from his family. Um, he found himself in the, in the youth criminal justice system. The youth criminal justice system, as we know, is a pipeline to prison. Prison often is a pipeline to social assistance. And that often leads to people experiencing homelessness. And I try to share with people that the, the reason that the, the residential schools and that era and that part of Canadian history is so difficult is because the target of that was children. So for people like my uncle, the toxic stress just on his, his brain at five or six years old, you know, you can't recover from that. And, you know, I got to meet my uncle when I was about 14, he came to the house and it's, it's strange to see somebody who looks so much like my dad or my other relatives, but you don't, you don't know them. And, you know, I, I, I know that my uncle, although my, my grandparents never raised him, he called them mom and dad to the day they died. And if you read the story that Eva put together, she asked him the question, you know, should people vote? And he says, yes, because you see all my family and friends that live in the street with me. If you don't hold people accountable, these, all of these people, they'll be institutionalized. If you don't vote, you know what institutionalized means? It means, it means jail. And the reason that he used that word is because that's exactly what our country had done to him. As part of the 60 scoop, we took indigenous you know, children away from families. We sold children to the United States. In fact, it's on the public record that we got more money for selling twins. So not only are we telling children that everything about who they are um, didn't belong, we were saying to them that they didn't even belong in the country. And what's so visceral about this, this era is that the target was, was children. And so when you read his quotes, to me, they're, they're grounded in kindness and and, you know, to, the, to this day, you know, and I, I still see him quite often, um, he'll come up to me and he'll give me a hug and he'll tell me he loves me. 
You know, he's respectful, he's kind, and he's loving. But I know that when people see him and they see how he lives and the struggles that he's going through, I know the judgment that they pass on him. And one of the one of the things that I've um, I've I've come to learn, and I and I shared the story of my uncle Dennis with with students, and I try to share it far and wide to build some understanding about not only the history, but when you judge somebody and you don't know their story, you don't know their journey. Nothing nothing good comes from that. And I told young people that the best medicine for healing is knowing your own story. And there was a time in my life where I wasn't proud of our name, the name chief. It reminded me of, you know, growing up in a bachelor pad with an alcoholic father and the struggles that we're going through. And so I realized that if I wanted to have a better future for my children and I wanted them to get a sense of pride of who they were and where they're from, I was going to have to confront things within my own story, my own family, things that I didn't want to, to deal with. And I came to realize that there was a truth. And when it comes to truth and reconciliation, the truth part isn't just for non-Indigenous people. There's a truth about my uncle that, that I realized that not only that I had to deal with, but I thought it was important to share. And I don't like sharing this part of the story. I, I find it quite difficult, but it's important. I know there was a time in my life, and it, it wouldn't even been that long ago, that if someone came to me and said, hey, Kevin, you see that guy living in the street? That's your uncle. I might have been embarrassed by that. And if I had to take my three young boys, Dax, who's six, Kellen, who's eight, and my oldest, Hayden, who's 12, and I, I, I had to take them and, and show them this man living in the street, and I, if I told them that that was a relative, I might have felt a sense of shame. And it bothers me. It bothers me knowing that, but because a group of survivors came forward, they shared their stories. They told us a little bit more about who we are as Canadians. In doing so, they taught me a little bit more about who I am, what my name means, where it comes from. Now, when I see my uncle or I share this story, I'm not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed. I'm proud. I'm, I'm so, so proud of him. And I had the opportunity to share this with Eva Wozni, the, the journalist who had done this story. And I was able to thank her because she took the time to learn about what the 60 scoop is. And she put that as the first line in the story, which turned the story, instead of a story of hopelessness, into a story of, of resiliency. You know, what, he, what my uncle has to say is important. And it was, it was important to me, and it should be important to all of us, that 
when you live in a democracy, a basic human right is to vote. But yet we know how impossible it is for people experiencing homelessness to vote. He has no fixed address, no proper identification. No one seeking him or any of the people who live in the streets, telling them where a polling station is or why they should vote. They're not trying to make it easy like they do for all of us. And so it's important that we have um, uh, a newspaper that, you know, is reminding people of that. His sister, my Aunt Susan, was just recently in the paper this past summer because their brother passed away and because he was sent to the States. Um before he passed away, we wanted to get his um, his body so he could be buried back home in our community in Duck Bay. But we didn't, we didn't have any legal rights. And so before he knew it, he was cremated. And we had to sort of negotiate with the, with the, the foster family. <clears throat> the daughter was still alive. And we were allowed to only get half his ashes to lay him to rest properly. And so this part of history is still incredibly painful and there's still people who who are struggling today to try to make sense of it and to try to find ways in which to in which to do to deal with this in a good way so they can feel part of their original family and find ways in which to bring our families together and so this story and this journey continues it's not just unique to to my family it's for thousands of families across the country I think the story of my uncle is important because I can't, I can't help but be somewhat vulnerable when I share it. I always get emotional, but that's okay. Because, you know, when you share these kinds of stories, you can't help but be sincere. And sincerity always leads to understanding. Understanding then leads to cooperation. And if we want to make life better and bring humanity to people like my uncle, and so much of the struggles in his life, it's not his fault. You know, he was taken as a young boy and, you know, removed from our family. And so if, if we could find ways to bring some humanity and find ways to work together to, to lessen the suffering so that he can live a, a life that he, he you know, a, to be safe and, and have dignity. And so if that means that I have to admit some truths about myself, I think it's important to do. And I, I try to encourage people to share stories that help you heal as you're sharing them. And I think that sharing this kind of story is important. Bonjour, Tonse, Tonchi. Hello, everybody. Greetings. We are here with Sandra Delarond, a good friend of mine, um, uh, who, of course, has done incredible work in the community, social changer coming from uh, Cross Lake and Duck Bay, uh, but has made it her life's work to end violence and support the families of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit peoples, um, is chair of the Manitoba uh, MMIWG2S coalition uh, is been a huge advocate at the commission of the National Inquiry into murdered, missing Indigenous women, girls, and two spirit persons, and is an honorary doctorate from the University of Winnipeg. Uh, so, Doctor Delarond, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Negon and the Lone Ranger. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
thank you for the introduction, Nikon, and uh, and the Lone Ranger. Yeah, the Lone Ranger's not here today. Uh, mm-hmm. He is busy off on down the trail. But you know, let's talk a little bit about this week. I mean, it, it's it's been an incredibly hard week here on Treaty One territory uh, because of the unveiling of yet another <laughs> serial killer of uh, of Indigenous women here in our territory. Uh, it's not just a tragedy, but also um, evidence of an ongoing systemic issue within our city. Uh, why is Winnipeg hit so badly with situations of murder, missing Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit peoples? Uh, and you know, maybe talk a little bit about why it is so important to have a coalition like the one that you're working for. So Sometimes uh, I think it's it's difficult to for me personally to um, talk past the tears, but I think we have come to a place where where we have to do that, each of us have to talk past the tears, you know, to be able to create change. I think that we have been, for many years, uh, been waiting for systems to change. And, you know, you're familiar with the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry. That dedicated uh, a volume of research to the matter of Helen Betty Osborne. And they had many recommendations, uh, but their finding, the most important finding, I think, was that Helen Betty Osborne would not have been murdered had she not been Aboriginal. Um, 50 years, 51 years have passed since her death, untimely death, and Despite that, despite the finding of the National Inquiry in 2019, um, there has been an increasing, catastrophic uh, murders of Indigenous women in this country. And I think it goes back to the findings of the Inquiry Helen Betty Osborne was Aboriginal. Systems fail to respond. Political systems fail to respond when the report was released. What that did was increase the perception of the community, uh, communities of this country that Aboriginal or Indigenous women are not worth anything. You know, we look at to this week, the, um, you know, as much as we value the work of the Winnipeg Police Service and, you know, they need to be commended in the work they did to bring um, these charges of first degree murder, which is really unprecedented. And going straight to trial too. Uh, yeah. So there's clear evidence, and there's some cl- clearly some heavy lifting the police have done to get this to get this c- case to trial. Yes, absolutely. But you know, when we when you know people talk about indigenous women, our lives are sacred, um, and our lives become sacred when we're dead. Until then, you know, I don't know if there's 
a dedicated unit from the RCMP or from the Winnipeg Police Service that looks for women that are missing in real time. You know, we've had some historic uh, cases through Operation Devote where people, uh, where the law enforcement, you know, has dedicated resources. But when people go missing in real time, when Indigenous women go missing in real time, it's the community like um, Bear, Bear Clan, it's Evelyn Searchers, it's uh, family members that are doing that work on the ground. And the what happened in in this case um i think may have been uh almost like a handed to the police right and granted they've done some excellent work um but going back to if there's work done when people are missing would we be here today and of course the the biggest issue right now is trying to find the remains of of uh four women uh that uh clearly the police know where they are but ha- are refusing to go and even try to search the area um let's say for a moment you know i wrote a column about the importance of saying their names and so as well as the names of all of those you mentioned helen betty osborne it has been 51 years uh since her the tragedy of her murder um in the paw mm-hmm. uh, but of course these women one of whom we don't know their her name uh, but the other three are mercedes myron morgan harris and rebecca contois uh, who we are less than now that we don't have these uh, mothers anti-sisters uh, in in our community uh, what's the impact of this on the community and how has the community reacted over the past few days you're in the center of this uh, wh- what are you seeing mm-hmm. uh, so what i can say is that we do have a number of sisters and mothers that are missing today. And when the news came out about the this violent and horrendous loss of life, that um, families that are missing, you know, that are looking for their loved ones right now were brought to a place of desperation looking for their looking for their daughters you know looking for their their nieces you know so they were on the ground by themselves you know looking for their looking for their loved ones and and again even this weekend you know still out there looking bringing in additional family members to go to places where they may or may not have been seen just it's it's tragic, you know, that um, we believe that there's more than one serial killer, that there are still people on the street uh, killing our women. And it's, it's desperate. We're in a desperate state right now. And you know, whatever support that we can provide. And and we're doing this, like families are doing this on their own. They're resourcing these searches on their own. Um, they're 
where possible, you know, organizations such as Southern Chiefs, uh, their MMIW unit, MKO, the MMIW unit, uh, Pevlin Searchers, uh, Ghani, try to provide support to the families. But the- nobody is trained in, in doing the search. You know, no one knows how to determine which evidence will bring them closer to finding their loved ones. There's a call on social media this weekend uh, for a national emergency in Treaty 1 or Winnipeg, and uh, that that's gaining a lot of steam. There's been uh, reaction in terms of marches and rallies. Uh, including uh, a few hours from when we're going to be speaking right now. Um, their MP, Leah Kazan, uh, Winnipeg Centre MP, who we've had on the podcast before, uh, has also joined in the calls for a national emergency. Um, what would the what would a national emergency do? Uh, what would the kind of attention that would be drawn, other than the previous attention that has been drawn upon this issue by the uh, the inquiry? Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, we have the the national inquiry had a finding of genocide. It shook Canada to its core and took them 24 hours to respond. If that had not meant a state of emergency for the situation of Indigenous women, uh, through um, government mandated inquiry. Uh, I don't know what will. I mean, we we can call a state of emergency, but that doesn't mean that governments will respond. We, yeah, you know, like we know that in the past when there has been impactful change in Canada, it's because they've been taken to international courts and international tribunals. We gained... uh, Many regained status as a result of the fight of Indigenous women at the International Tribunal to regain status. Um, Canada had to implement uh, Bill C-31 and S-3 in order for for people to be recognized as rights holders. So what hopefully, you know, by declaring a national state of emergency, if Canada can and the provinces, the provinces are not immune to providing support. Um, if they can uh, actually, you know, create that path forward with the community, then then we will have done something. But whether uh, Canada will do that, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. We know. We have been in a state of emergency for many years. Yeah, I was reminded that when Justin Trudeau accepted the findings of the inquiry that the finding of genocide uh, was happening, not just in the past, but in the present state for Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit peoples, uh, you think something would have been done out of that. I mean, when you declare a genocide is happening currently, then all hands on deck. I mean, everything should be focused towards stopping this. But it seemed like Canada turned the page. And then I'm thinking back to a number of years ago, 2015, I believe, when uh, McLean's magazine said that Winnipeg was the most racist city in whatever, the galaxy universe, whatever they decided. But that the response to that was led by the mayor. 
And the the attention that came from that, the committees that came from that, the resources, uh, in many ways, the uh, Indigenous Accord, uh, the signing on of everyone from private to public industry to commit to stopping this uh, or changing the situation of racism in the city. And arguably, things some things have changed. Uh, training for city officers, for example, um, more resources and support to support local agencies. Do you think that the mayor should be stepping up here in Winnipeg? Because we are talking about uh, a second serial killer within a decade here in the city. And what you're saying is likely more. For sure. I think I think the city needs to uh, provide more resources, more, more action. Like right now we're dealing with the safe transportation, which is the... Uh, safety of women on in taxis and on buses in the city. And we have asked for training uh, of all taxi drivers, like uh, new and uh, ongoing training uh, with regards to safety measures for Indigenous women. And that really has to be part of the licensing agreement you know when we talk about um when we talk about how 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 can uh governments whether municipal provincial or federal how can things change it's to change their policies and entrench things like like training um staffing you know it's the same thing that we've heard for many years but i can tell you what's different despite you know the the number of inquiries uh from the aboriginal justice inquiry the royal commission to this national inquiry is indigenous women and their families and survivors fought for change for 30 years to have an inquiry. We have an inquiry. It's not, you know, there still is more to be done, could have been done, but this is what we've got. We've got 231 legal imperatives and we will not let it go until those uh, in, uh, 231 legal imperatives are implemented and that we see substantive change. Why do you think that, I mean, the 231 calls for justice from the inquiry uh, has not gained the kind of public attention that the Truth Reconciliation Commission 94 calls to action has, uh, even though many times they overlap. Uh, but I'm just thinking back to the idea that if, if, a, if a genocide is called, why is it that Canada is so slow to move on this issue. Uh, and if this was the situation of a man out there, an individual out there uh, killing non-Indigenous women, uh, there would be mon monuments, memorials, there'd be a national day. I mean, I'm thinking about the uh, Polytechnic massacre and how much attention is paid to that and the fact that every year we were reminded of what happened I think it's nearly five decades ago. Uh, 
just a few years ago, we heard about the tragedy in BC, the Lower East Side, of dozens upon dozens upon dozens, the worst serial killing in Canadian history of of anyone, but particularly Indigenous women and girls. Why is it so slow? Or why is there seem to be such indifference that even though we're using the big words, there's such a lack of action? I think... It's Indigenous women, and Canada has led the the world in showing how uh, disposable Indigenous women can be. And we talk about genocide, and I, I can tell you, 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 yeah, it's ongoing. But it started with the when we come to the treaty making process. Like in in my own lineage, one of the the women was head of uh, Duck Bay and went to the Treaty 4 uh, gathering and uh, was not allowed to speak or to sign the treaty on behalf of Duck Bay because she only because she was a woman. But, you know, the, the next uh, gathering of Treaty 4, she appointed her son-in-law to, uh, you know, whatever may not have been that legal term, but, you know, for understanding people, to represent the community and to sign on to the Treaty 4 adhesion. And that was done. But, you know, so like on one hand, it really is an example of how this, that, that how disappearing Indigenous women has been part of the colonial project right but it also shows that the strength and the resilience of indigenous women being like water you know if there's a barrier well we'll go around it we'll find a way to go around it and we continue to do that we continue to survive and thrive despite the very real nature of genocide in our lives today in the Winnipeg exec, Indigenous Executive Circle are, you know, a group of almost 40 um, frontline organizations that are led by Indigenous women and part of creating change and supporting how the work is done in Winnipeg. So we have to, we have had to be our own warriors and continue to do the work. And I think that the TRC um, calls to action, the 231 calls to justice are interwoven like DNA, you know, that we can't do one without the other. But so we have to as we say, acknowledge the truth of the situation, that there is a genocide, it's uh, femicide, it's misogyny when it comes to Indigenous women. But um, as we acknowledge that, we also have to acknowledge that we have to go through a process of reparation. What does that look like? We've done the truth-telling through the inquiry. What does reparation look like? And then what does reconciliation look like? It 
you know, and all those things may happen uh, in a spiral, like they're not going to all happen together. Some may be uh, farther along than others, but we have to keep working and put those resources on the ground. And, you know, you spoke to the situation a few years ago in uh, BC where the uh, individual or the two individuals had uh, murdered two uh, mainstream folks. Uh, or two Caucasian people in BC, Canada uh, deployed all its resources to find the killers. The media deployed all its resources to find the killers, you know? And so we have a situation where there isn't the, uh, the focus that's provided by, um, by the media, there isn't the focus provided by law enforcement and, you know, governments. So, again, you know, we're left to do it on our own. And if that means taking Canada again to international court to implement the 231 calls to justice, then that must be done. I'm reminded of how critically important it is to uh, focus that this is something happening now. And I think that one of the reasons why Canada is so amenable to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission 94 calls is often because they think residential schools is over and they just have to now sort of clean up the clean up the remains. Whereas the issue of what the inquiry brought up uh, is very much present and very much about what happening is right now. And as we saw with this week, this is very much a current situation this is a critical emergency that's ongoing and that everybody is complicit. I mean, everybody uh, pays the taxes for the systems that ignore the calls by women when they're abused or when, you know, on the Mama Bear Clan, when we walk uh, every week, three, four times a week, almost every walk we run into families looking for someone that almost always it's women, uh, young women, particularly, usually under the age of 18. And, and I was reminded that, you know, the last one of the times that we hung out together, um, was at the vigil for Tina Fontaine uh, right. and that um, I was holding the, the, I organized the event, but I made sure that it was that women were in charge like yourself, like Thelma Fable, uh, Tina's mm-hmm. entity, uh, and that we took direction from that. And that's very much the model, I think, of what needs to happen. But having Indigenous women in leadership, I think, makes Canada uncomfortable in lots of different ways. And uh, you can see that in the reaction this week. This year is the record number of Indigenous homicides in the city. We're looking at over three dozen. And as we now know, uh, over nearly about a dozen or so are Indigenous women and girls. Um, And more so now, I guess exceeding 12 now that we have uh, uh, this recent revelation. Why is it so bad this year? Do you have any insight onto what has happened this year? Is it the pandemic? Is it the uh, breakdown of city services? Is it the radical increase in addictions in the downtown area, which we know is also happening? I think it's all those things. And, and it you know certainly is about uh, city services, but it's also about provincial services. We had you know um, many units of low-cost housing, that have been bulldozed or converted. We've had low cost housing that have 
in the areas that most need it, converted to condos. And, uh, you know, it's a lower tax rate for people that purchase them. We have a higher number of uh, private rental properties, such as Airbnb, um, in areas that are now being gentrified that would have previously been uh, accessible as uh, affordable housing. Uh, so affordable housing is a big um, issue. And, and then we have things like um, policies of the child welfare agencies that, you know, where a woman is housed with her children. And if for some reason they decide to uh, apprehend those children, you know, often it's because of poverty, then the woman uh, ends up losing her home because she doesn't have the children. And then the chances of getting her children back are near to impossible because she has to be in a situation where she's able to provide a stable home for her children. So it's, you know, people that are in poverty that live on the, you know, on the edge of crisis uh, are not supported by systems that are apparently designed to support their health and well-being. Then we run into the mental health crisis, which is mitigated by you know, the uh, use of um, life-altering drugs. So bringing it back, maybe, not maybe, but a guaranteed livable income would make a difference. Well, I, when you're talking about the, the lack of support services, um, I'm particularly aware of the issues of women who are trying to leave uh, difficult situations in their lives. Uh, and the fact that there is such a lack of support for those agencies, they're often, uh, you know, barely keeping the lights on. And when it comes to, uh, I've had students who are in situations where they need a place to live for a while with their children. And uh, luckily I have access to resources that I can support those students with through to my department and put them in a hotel because frankly, the places that they go either don't accept children or they put the, the, they're in dangerous situations and they can't guarantee safety for those individuals in those facilities. It, it is just absolutely brain, brain numbing how small of a resource allocation that would ultimately be to give women safe spaces to go uh, to transition and uh, how minimal that is. And, you know, I wrote a piece recently, and this will be our final question here. To, I know you're very busy today and so on, but. I, you know, I was trying to come up with a way that we could see a solution through all of this and the tremendous uh, pain and, and it can feel very overwhelming uh, when we get to what we need to do to deal with the issue of um, homicides generally, but also murder, missing, indigenous women and girls and two-spirit peoples. And I really ultimately came up with the solution of caring. Mm. Like that, was, that was what I wrote in my column. I said, here's the solution is we all got to care. Yeah. And that seems so simple, but maybe, I mean, more than that, of course, all the things that you're talking about, but 
Is that really where it begins is just caring? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's for Canada, it's for the city not to see this as just an Indigenous problem, a problem, you know, that they see us as a problem. Society has to care enough to see the humanity of looking after one another, you know, of, of calling on governments to uh, to support to care for those that need that right now, because we know the situation we didn't arrive at in this generation. It has been multiple generations that have brought us here. And we also know that, you know, I, I just want to say for, I don't know how much it would cost to look in the landfill, but I don't want the landfill to be the burial grounds for our women. But I also know that that for generations that corporations have taken the resources from the land, and if we look at the land as our first mother and have never taken care of what they have what they have taken from the land or the people you know have used the people that have been part of that, I think the, those corporations can put something back into the community by supporting, financially resourcing the uh, recovery of the women that are in Brady Landfill. It's not just a government responsibility, it's the responsibility of those corporations that have taken and never given back. And profited billions, continue yes, to profit. Continue. And I think that those companies may not realize that this violence is the outcome of the theft of those lands, the exploitation of the lands, and the ongoing possession of those lands, the, that they have a role to play in this. And uh, I think that's brilliant and uh, certainly something that is a solution uh, that everybody can get behind because it is, an, it is about all, all of us. It's about all of us. And I purposely used when I spoke about our relatives who who uh, we we found out what happened to them this week is I I use the term relations when I'm just talking about them because I want everyone to understand that is their relations too. It's not yeah. someone they just walk by on the street and say it means somebody who means nothing. It is their relations. So Sandra Miguetch for this time, and I can't say thanks enough for you know taking this time out on on a very difficult weekend. Yes. Thank you for, you know, continuing to elevate the issue and not letting it go under the carpet in Canada. Appreciate that. We're back. I want to just thank Sandra Delarond for a fantastic interview and being so generous with her time during such a sensitive time, I think, for all of us. And of course, what a great story by Kevin Chief. Um, whenever I hear Kevin, tell that story. Uh, I mean, I choke up and I think all of us did after hearing that. Uh, what a great, what a great opportunity is to hear two amazing leaders and advocates in the community during such a sensitive time, I think, for all people here in Treaty One in Winnipeg. Yeah, I think that the, um, you know, I hope 
um, that everyone, um, you know, Indigenous and non-Indigenous alike, um, that are not directly connected to the events that are going on, realize what an extraordinary time this is. Extraordinary for a lot of the wrong reasons, unfortunately. But that, um, you know, we really have uh, a situation unfolding, a news story unfolding that could, like, I, I don't think that either one of us, I mean, we've talked about this before, can imagine a story that is more inflammatory, more threatening, um, more alarming to Indigenous people, and particularly uh, Indigenous women and girls, uh, than the the story of the serial killer that we're watching right now. And uh, you know, this is going to like it, this is this will leave rifts. This is going to leave scars uh, on the community. There's no doubt. Two. Well, one, I mean, the, the the current one is not been found guilty yet. So, I mean, I guess uh, we're aware of that and um, it's uh, the, the trial is coming up. But, you know, two serial killers in a decade in a city preying on the same community of women. Uh, this is not something that can be easily uh, swept under the rug. This was, you know... Uh, after the uh, the case of Sean Lamb uh, in 2013, when he was put away for 20 years, um, this is a a time in which people said, "Oh, changes are going to take place," and clearly they haven't taken place. And so here we are now, nine years later, in a similar situation where it's even worse. And uh, since we taped that interview with Sandra Delarond, um, this is a bit of an update. It's a few days later since we've done that interview. And uh, today, the police came out to talk about the fact that uh, it is not the Brady landfill site that it's been. Um, they came out and said that the remains of Mercedes Myron and Morgan Beatrice Harris uh, were at a landfill site, but they didn't indicate that it was the Brady landfill site where Rebecca Contois was found. Uh, it was announced today that it's at the Prairie Green Landfill, which is quite a distance away from the Brady Landfill. It's near Stony Mountain, Manitoba. And uh, they were very uh, upfront today in the press conference by saying it is impossible uh, to be even know where to begin at that landfill site and the resources are considerably less. Uh, and so they've announced that uh, in reaction to public pressure, that they double down today to say that they are not going to be searching that landfill site, uh, much to the chagrin and upset and disappointment of the families and the Indigenous community. Uh, you only have to look on social media to see there is a great deal of anger and upsetness involving uh, the lack of the police to go and do this. Uh, they did make a very um, extensive argument today to say why they would not be doing this, uh, searching at this site. And wherever you sit on this issue, it's it's just not going to be something that's going to be reconciled. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think there's a possibility uh, that the Winnipeg Police Service may have been better served uh, slightly if they the information that we got today uh, about the about the Prairie Green uh, 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 site, the the the. Uh, disadvantages that they're working with. Uh, they believe that it was more that they, they only learned of the existence of the remains at Prairie green more than a month after uh, uh, they believe that they were, uh, their remains were sent there. Um, and uh, since then, um, you know, there's been clay 
added to the site and that's packed down and more garbage and more clay. There's uh, apparently uh, a ton, like a lot of animal remains and asbestos has also been dumped there and then sealed in with more clay. Um, you know, this isn't to make an excuse for the Winnipeg Police Service's decision, but, you know, you do have to wonder um, if the, the the tone of public discussion around this would have been different if they had come out with some of these details uh, earlier in the week uh, or even last week. Uh, you know, I think that the some of the uh, some of the family of uh, the women who are believed to be the victims in this serial killing uh, case, you know, they they did come out today and they said that uh, they're still not satisfied that the the whole uh, you know imagery of uh, of a uh, of a indigenous woman being left in a garbage dump it's just too horrible for them to to uh, uh, to bear and and you know it really should be for the rest of us because you know if you're paying close enough attention to this the underlying the big story that's going on here is that this is now part of the national identity uh, I mean you and I were talking about how widely the story has been circulated it's cross it's across the world i mean this story appeared in the bbc in the guardian cnn had it as a lead story uh winnipeg is very much on front and center and rightfully so you know the i, I wrote in my column last week that uh winnipeg is very much ground zero for this issue of murder missing just women and girls uh much of the issues that sandra deleron pointed out in her interview uh, begin here. They have emerged here because of the history of Canada's treatment of Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit peoples. Uh, the fact is that all of us have inherited that history and it is now impacting all of our lives and our institutions around us. And we're seeing what was very much uh, a logical result of 150 years of genocide, as the uh, inquiry pointed out. And so it is very much the fabric of the country. It is something that can Canadians have to face. And it's not something that you can simply say it's their issue. It is all of our issue. And we have to be better than this. Like we have to be as a community better than this. Uh, we thought that the community had learned that the institutions, the police services, the emergency services, institutions had learned from the, uh, the serial killing of Sean Lamb just nine years ago. And now here we are with uh, things even worse and we have to we have to be better uh, we have to step up more uh, my column coming up is about uh, the fact that this person had a long history of hatred of indigenous peoples and there are many people who are complicit in feeding into that hatred by publishing uh, nonsense and lies about indigenous peoples in mainstream publications like national newspapers and that people get fed into this discourse hate indigenous peoples and the result is the murder of indigenous women yeah i mean you know it's you know and and my reference to national identity you know i'm i still think because we're still writing about residential schools and unmarked graves and you know to i i wouldn't say most of the readers the winnipeg free press but a lot of readers you know it's the reaction is kind of uh well, you know, uh, yeah, it was a bad thing. Let's move on. It was it's ancient history. And I think that that's the part that that's so dangerous is this idea that, you know, after trying to deconstruct an entire culture, uh, you know, uh, an entire people, that somehow we're uh, we're now uh, those of us, our ancestors who were responsible for that, 
like we think that we're the ones that we can tell we can say it's time to get on with it that it's ancient history you know it's not and as unfortunate uh, as it may be to hear and, and as in contrast to so many of the great things that we can say about Canada we are also a country where indigenous women and girls die at an alarming rate where they are metaphorically and literally speaking now they are treated as disposable uh, people they're dehumanized and then that's the only way that crimes like this can happen um, you know it, it's not time for us to to run around you know waving our arms in the air and howling about how unfair it is that this has become a part of the national identity and bloody do something about it I, I you know and and I'm not I know saying do something about it is a that's a mouthful, you know, and uh, and there, I mean, there's no not, one thing. Yeah, it's not easy, and the solutions are evident. But you know, it begins by listening to Indigenous women and girls and validating their experiences. I'm standing beside them when they stand up and talk about violence. Uh, this is the time in which we should be uh, recognizing families, and absolutely, it is something in which the uh, the coming forward, things are going to get worse before they get better. Yeah. Uh, we have a trial coming up uh, where uh, this individual will be held to account. Um, it's widely expected as those of us in the media are getting small pieces of rumors and innuendos here and there. If even one-tenth of what we are hearing uh, through different leaks and sources uh, talk about the details of what this case entails. Uh, it will be horrific and it will take much of the attention. And uh, we cannot forget that those women are in that uh, landfill site. We cannot uh, deny and, and forget the importance of where their resting place is. At the same time, we cannot turn away from what is about to be a very difficult situation for those families to hear what happened to their relatives, to their nieces and their daughters, uh, and that all of us are implicated. All of us are a part of this. It's going to be a, a, a difficult few months here in Treaty 1. I, I'm going to I'm gonna personally, uh, I'm not a religious man, so I, I'm going to fall back on the old, the custom of, keeping every finger and toe that I have crossed and uh, all my positive thoughts and energies that um, the police are able to put together a rock solid case in, in this instance. Um, you know, just four years ago, we saw an instance where Winnipeg police and Manitoba justice tried unsuccessfully to prosecute uh, a man for the murder of Tina Fontaine. And I think a lot of us that watched those proceedings, the re news reports. I was in the you, courtroom. Yeah. I was in the courtroom when that happened. Yeah. You could totally see it. You could feel it. And the and I think, you know, uh, uh, in a, in a non-technical way, I don't think there was anybody who thought the police had put the wrong guy up on the stand. But the fact remains, too, they didn't get him. And they, they didn't get enough to, to convict. So... Um, you know, we just, uh, you know, I don't think it's a, a, a lack of effort. I just think that uh, we need uh, the community and Indigenous women and girls in particular, they need to see, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the book on this story closed with a conviction. And so I'm going to hope that that happens. 
Well, no doubt we'll come back to this issue. Uh, you know, this brings the, to a close this week's episode, but certainly it's been a hard week and it's been a hard uh, it's been a hard show, I think, our hardest so far to talk about such a serious issue that's playing out in real time in our community. Uh, but uh, as usual, it is such an honor to do this work with you and 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 it's an honor for me to uh, to you know to partner with CJNU and Adam Glynn, our producer who has just worked so hard and been so flexible this week because we've had to re-record a couple times because this story is happening so quickly. And uh, a big thanks to Sandra Delarond and to Kevin Chief for uh, giving their gifts on this episode. And uh, as always, a huge thanks to the Free Press for believing in this uh, work that we're doing. Uh, Paul Simin, the editor, and all of our colleagues over there at the Free Press. And uh, and thanks to you, Nigan. And thanks very much to anybody and everybody who took time to listen, and we'll see you again in a week. <laughs>